to the Renegade Yogi podcast experience. Join myself, Zorananda, and this episode's guest as we explore yoga in the modern world. Prepare yourself as we will experience yoga like never before. So today I'm solo. As you'll see, every even episode, so every other episode, I'm going to do just a solo chat, specifically diving into uh, certain yoga philosophies, concepts, ideas, practices. And my intention to do this is to bring some clarity, or at least try to bring some clarity on what are some convoluted subjects and what I think is the reason why people kind of stray away from yoga. They don't really want to go that deep into it. It's, you know, there, there seems to be this threshold or this barrier of, okay, I'm going to go to a couple classes at a studio. I'm going to learn these stretches and that feels good until the teacher starts talking about chakras or prana or lines from the Bhagavad Gita or introduce some some kind of mantra. Then it just goes over the head and, you know, it's understandable. I get it. When suddenly someone starts speaking in Sanskrit, that's a whole other language. You're literally being introduced to another language by someone who doesn't speak the language. And that just sets up red flags, right? Because it makes sense that if we're going to learn something from another culture in an authentic way, we're going to want to learn from people in that culture. And which seems counterintuitive to why I'm even here. <laughs> Why am I talking about yoga? And I'm clearly a Westerner. Um, that The answer to that is the passion that's built up around yoga for me has been life-changing. It's brought me around the world. I've used it to change myself in a lot of ways. And so it's been healing, it's been revealing, and the approach that I want to take is to give an understanding of the benefit of it while appreciating the culture that it comes from. And you'll find and you'll see that in my story that I've done my best to, to represent that. And today, what I particularly want to go into is the misconceptions around yoga and, and why there is this sphere of 
of kind of resentment towards it now. Um, and and it, I feel that it really stems back to the way that it was brought to the West. People don't really know the story of yoga and, and how it came to the West. Um, and if they do, they really only know it through BKS Iyengar, Patabi Joyce, Bikram, the ones who really got sucked into the commercialization of it, the ones who um, gave into the Western vitriol of buying properties and cars and um, making as much money as you possibly can as any of you who are yogis or who know about the yoga world and the controversies, you know, even just the name Bikram itself can be triggering to people. And so in my conquest and journey in really understanding yoga is rather than getting into that side of the history and getting into those practices, I looked at who were the actual pioneers of bringing yoga to the West. And those two individuals are Swami Vivekananda, who came to Boston in the later 1800s, only stayed for about six years. Um, he was a, a representative of Raja Yoga, and he was representative of his teacher, Paramahansa Ramakrishna, who was a devout Kali worshiper. Um, so those terms aren't really important right now, but the importance is that he was actually the first Indian mystic who was a yogi who came to America first. So came to the United States and disseminated yoga, um, mainly in the guise of philosophy and psychology and a, a yoga of understanding consciousness than anything physical. It was purely um, a, a, a psychological understanding of the nature of consciousness in, in man because at that time, you had someone like Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, William James, who were these uh, kind of radical thinkers of that of around that time, late 1800s. Um, and so the second individual who came to America was Paramahansa Yogananda. And his guru was Swami Sri Yukteswar. Sri Yukteswar's guru is Lahiri Mahasaya, and the whole arc of their lineage was through Babaji and Kriya Yoga. So this was actually the first introduction to some kind of physical practice um, through Kriya Yoga. However, their emphasis was on uniting Hinduism and Christianity in America by seeing the 
actual parallels in philosophies from the Vedas and from the New Testament. And so Paramahansa Yogananda came in with this angle of we're no different. We're really the same and we follow the same principles really. And here's a physical yoga practice with breathing techniques and um, just uh, several postures, nothing too complicated. And here are some breathing techniques and some meditations to connect you to God and to connect you to Jesus because that's where we go to. And he was really successful with this in the 15 years that he was, uh, first in America, I might've gone that wrong. So I think in his total time of being in America, which was from, um, the early 1900s to around the 1940s, um, that he initiated over a hundred thousand people um, into Kriya Yoga through the Self-Realization Fellowship that he created. So the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I feel that's really the authentic origin point of yoga coming to the West. There's a whole other origin point, which I think is actually authentic, inauthentic. Um, it comes from the occult. It comes from theosophical thinkers who were brought up in either Catholicism or, or uh, Christianity and denounced it, left it, took on esoteric alchemical um, ideas and practices from the Kabbalah and started performing magic. And that's a huge generalization. I know there's so much more to it. You can totally pick that apart and say, well, there's, you know, all, all these other, um, factors. However, people like Alice A. Bailey, Alistair Crowley, um, Charles Webster, lead beater, Madame Blavatsky, there was this adoption of yogic principles into an occult kind of ritualistic manner where these people weren't at all actually yogis. That's the thing that really people need to understand is that yes, they got their hands on some yogic knowledge and they got their hands on um, some scriptures and um, some teachings, but for the most part, their time spent in India and actually with a master like Sri Yukteswar or Ramakrishna or even Vivekananda and Yogananda themselves was very little in all reality. You know, you have to draw a comparison here that people like Ramakrishna who took on a 12 year daily practice to get to enlightenment or he'll just die or he'll just kill himself. This is the kind of intensity that we're looking at that most of the Western kind of occult uh, theosophers, they, they didn't go to that degree in yoga. They looked at what 
was said they looked at and they experienced some things with some sadhus and then when they went back home they picked apart what was relevant to them and how they can sell the work that they were presenting and the magic and the occult and the ritual and um the philosophy that they were presenting and so in that there's inherent misconception because you're going to have people talking about a subject that's from their opinion rather their direct experience from a regular daily practice that is refined and contains a set of asana a set of pranayama a set of visualization and mantra yantras and meditation where when you read a lot of these books especially like madame blavatsky i haven't read it but it's like 1200 pages or more you know um like i read alistair crowley's libra four you go into the yoga part and it's like he's just reciting what he read and i want to be careful here because Everyone does their best, right? At a time where, especially in the late 1800s, early 1900s, this kind of information was very scarce. So I, I can see the benefit in people just wanting to get the work out there. But I think now, now we're in a time where we can look back at all that and we can see more clearly which is authentic, which is misconstrued and is less authentic and decide for ourselves how we can take on a yoga practice that is upheld by the light of the original forebears of it rather than a misconstrued view of it from people who had very little experience in the practice and had self-deprecating motivations that were unforeseen at their time of getting into the information, but led to a, a somewhat of a terrible life for the most part for some of these uh, kind of Western thinkers who were into the occult. And one great example of this misconception is from someone named Charles Webster Leadbeater. He wrote the first Western book about the chakras. And so if you got into the chakras, if you're really passionate about the chakras and you think you know quite a bit about it, chances are what you know about it is actually from this man and you don't even know it. The thing that's troubling about his book is that he was one of these men who was in the Catholic church. He was... Um, I don't know if I want to say he was a bishop or he was a clergyman. He was, he was something of, of, an, of a kind of an upper rank and met a woman who became his disciple because she could see these like clairvoyantly these orbs of energy on people and their bodies. And he ended up leaving the church so he can start to investigate this understandable 
new information, exciting, you know, you see someone who has this ability and they're explaining these things. Great. He decides to travel to India to try to meet with a sadhu or a guru or someone failed in all of his attempt. He wasn't able to meet any yogi in my thought, I think it's because they just didn't want to appear to him. Um, because that was at a time where the knowledge of yoga was still highly safeguarded by, um, these like upper sadhus and, and Brahmins. Nonetheless, he does find some old tantric texts, some old yogic texts, um, and takes the knowledge and brings it back to England where he's from. And he found some information on these things called chakras, the wheels of energy. And what he was able to correlate is that the, the placement of the chakras in the texts from India and the number of petals on each wheel matched what his disciple was saying. And so this inspired him to write this book, which I read. And what red flag came up immediately for me is that when he is talking about each chakra, he gets to Svadhisthana, the second chakra, the chakra of um, creativity, sexual energy, um, pleasure. The element is water. It's all about fluidity. He omits any information on it and has a star and asterisk. And as in the footnote, it says, I have removed any information about this chakra because it's, in my opinion, the most dangerous chakra as per the Egyptians in their description of what sexual energy can do. So this was written in, I think, 1926. Okay. This is the start of the Western world's understanding the chakras and he omits the most important one seemingly because of everything that has to do with procreation, creating life, sexual creativity, pleasure, passion, fluidity. It, the, the information on the chakra isn't just solely about sexuality and sexual pleasure. It's an indicator for the nature of water in our body. And it's understandable that at that time, he's dealing with a culture that's largely sexually oppressed. And he just came out of the Catholic Church where there's intense celibacy, right? So it's understandable that he doesn't want to piss off a bunch of people. He wants to sell a book. And so he, want, he went on to glamorize the other ones. And which the thing I thought that was good about the book is that he did use the original color scheme because that's another misconception that I'm leading into. 
And before I do that, so think about that now from 1926 to now, right? We've had almost a hundred years of people learning about the chakras, starting from him, evolving all the way. Imagine all the people that have written chakra books now who have used, maybe even directly knowing in their books using Charles Webster Liedbeger, or not at all, this understanding that in his book he replaced the Svadhisthana chakra with the spleen chakra. He made up the spleen chakra. So when anyone talks about the spleen chakra, there's no spleen chakra traditionally. He made that up because he thought that it would be more accurate that the chakra would be in that location rather than where it is traditionally. And so that is a fabrication right there. And once I learned this, I started to think, what else is a fucking fabrication in all these other books? Okay. The rainbow color chakras. I know this is a hard one because people, they love associating the rainbow with the chakras. They love it. And they say to themselves and they say outwardly, well, when I go in and I visualize the chakras, I see the rainbow color. And I typically say, yeah, because you're naturally imaginative. And so you can visualize the chakras any color you want. It actually really doesn't matter. However, we've got to look at why the rainbow was adopted and for the life of me i've been trying to find this fellow's name and i just i haven't been able to recall it i haven't been able to find it um however the adoption of the rainbow color was again from a western philosophical thinker and this time an actual doctor and it was a french fellow who also learned about the chakras, also went to India and came back. However, he wanted, he felt it was so important for people to know this. He was like, you know, why don't we have this understanding in, in our Western world? This is amazing that there's these centers of, of energy. And And so he took it upon himself to relate the chakras to something already existing in the scientific world. And what was obvious to him is that when he saw a rainbow and he saw the seven colors, he thought to himself, oh my God, that's it. 
I can relate the rainbow to the chakras because then it, the rainbow is something that everyone is already familiar with. And so not only that, I'm going to call the chakras a plexus because there's already a solar plexus when actually the solar plexus has nothing to do with the chakra. And so he started calling each one a plexus, a throat plexus, a heart plexus. Um, and I, I can't remember what he did for this, for the other, for the first two. But then fast forward to now, people call the second chakra, the spleen chakra. People call the third chakra, the solar plexus, you know, the solar chakra. Those are the misconceptions, right? And let's, let's go back to Charles Webster Liebeer and his disciple. So his disciple can see these chakras and she says, this is what they look like. And he actually, in his book, he has drawings of them from his disciple and the color schemes. And I was looking at this and I was thinking about it. The, the issue is that this is the early or the late 1800s, the early 1900s. We know that there's a huge thing on sexual suppression at that time, right? People are generally not that healthy. Their lifespan is much lower. A lot of the time people are alcoholics and they're smoking much more than I think even given now, even though there's a higher population, I think, um, the normalization of you can just walk into anywhere with a cigarette and smoke in uh, wherever, right? Just generally the hygiene wasn't that great at that time. So you got to think, she's looking at people who are not yogis at all, have very little actual sense of health and care, Think about England and the diet at that time, meat and mashed potatoes and bread and cheese and butter, right? They don't have something like Ayurveda and this whole spectrum and sphere of herbalism, right? So she's looking at someone who is largely most likely not that healthy, not that balanced at all, right? They're not meditating every day. They're not doing an intense yoga practice. They're not looking at their specific diet and eating as clean as possible, right? They, they don't have practice of understanding sattvic qualities of, of food and air and water and health. So I thought, well, what if she did go to India and see an actual yogi? If she was clairvoyant and she saw a yogi who practices 12 hours a day every day since he was eight, I'm sure his chakras would look very different, very different than what she saw of some random person in London, right? There's another misconception. 
And so it's really important to, to look at these things and, and to question the material around these ideas and where it's coming from. And so luckily I had the opportunity to actually investigate this and find this information. And it's really helped me actually understand the chakras in a more holistic way, in a practical way, not in a way of like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking in and I'm looking at my heart and I'm visualizing green. Oh, and it feels good. That's not good enough. There are psychological components to the philosophies and the psychology of the chakras that comes from the traditional teachings and which has been expanded upon from newer yogis in our generation. And that's an important thing too, is that there are Himalayan yogis who have done a great deal of work to actually represent the chakras in a more cohesive, coherent, more aligned way. <clears throat> so what I want to do is focus on a chakra theme for my upcoming videos where I'm actually going to go into each chakra individually. So I'm going to do a whole episode Start with Muladhara, start with the root, come up to Svadhisthana for the second chakra, Manipura for the third chakra, Anahata for the fourth, Vishuddhi or Vishuddha for the fifth, Ajna or Agnya for the sixth, and Sahasrara. And to clear away some ideas, right? Especially the ideas of aligning your chakras, clearing your chakras, balancing your chakras, these fluffy words that sound so great that really are only coming from this Western chakra understanding. So to finish up here, I don't know everything. I'm still learning, you know, I'm 12 years into my yoga practice and my life as a yoga teacher and meditation teacher. And there's many things that I'm still learning. And I know that even I'm privy to some misconception because that seems to be the nature of the, of the world that we're in that, um, we just can't help be ignorant to something, right? There's probably something that I said in this video that was even not so accurate um, or information that I left out that leads to something that gets misconstrued. Um, and where I find solace in the, the lineage that I have studied and, and the teachers that, that I have, is I remind myself of something that Shurukteswar said in his book, The Holy Science. Um, he was pointing out the misconceptions and the inaccuracies of the counting of the Kali Yuga, um, where he did his very best to 
represent the cycle of the yugas, the whole cycle in with the precession of the earth, that it makes sense that the cycle is actually a period of around 25,000 years rather than the whole hundreds of thousands of years span of the yugas. And what he says is that even though he found this inaccuracy, that there's probably an, ac an inaccuracy that he's saying because later on down the road, someone is going to have more information and a better understanding to point out where he was wrong on things. And that's actually really humbling. And so I keep that in mind so that I can exercise being humble and I can prepare myself for the changing of information and for the upcoming generations so that I can continue learning. And that's the biggest thing is we really want to be okay with being wrong sometimes, right? And that way we can easily adapt and adjust. And understanding the chakras and understanding the psychology of each one is really gonna help in going along with those adjustments. And we'll see that in some future videos. So thank you for sticking around and listening to this second episode of my very first podcast, the Renegade Yogi Podcast Experience. And what you can look forward to is not only conversations, not only little yoga rants like this and some educational information is really the experience part, um, especially when I have guests on. Uh, I'm going to have not only yoga teachers, not only meditation teachers, I'm going to have artists and musicians and scientists and, you know, you name it, people from all walks of life. And my intention is to relate how they live their life and what they do with yoga in some way. That's not intrusive. However, it's complementary to what they already know, what their experiences are. Because my philosophy is that yoga is an addition to your life. It's not meant to take you away from anything. If you have a teacher that says, you need to leave your family, you need to leave your significant other, you need to quit your job, you need to come and live in my ashram full time, you need to be in service um, and in seva and do karma yoga and, and no, that's a red flag immediately. Yoga is an addition. It's something you add to your life. You have a day job at an office, you're a construction worker, you're a marine biologist, whatever you are, you're a banker, whoever, whatever. Yoga comes into your life and you see how the changes that you're making from the outside, from the stretching, from the physical work, the strengthening, 
to the changes on the inside, to the balancing of your hormones, to the clarity of your mind, to the relaxation, to the non-triggering of your aggression, that suddenly you look at your job and you go, I can actually, I can actually enjoy myself. I don't have to be so triggered all the time and watch how more unfolds, right? As my teacher would say, Yoga Rishi Vishwaketu, things are happening. Let the things happen as an addition to your life. And hopefully all this talk about chakras and the upcoming chats about chakras can be a good addition to your life as well. That you can see when we talk about the chakras, we talk about, say, the root chakra, that you get a good sense of how you can apply that into your life without worrying about the misconceptions, right? So that's, that's a big thing. So again, thank you for listening. Check out my first episode if you haven't. It's with uh, my good friend Mark Steves from My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And check out the Wild Bloom Botanicals website from my dear fiance Alicia, as you've seen the ad in uh, a couple ads in this episode. And check out my website, zoranunda.com. You can find my book there you can find my music there and some meditations and reach out to me wherever you're listening or seeing this um if it's on youtube if it's on bitchute if it's uh you know you can find me on instagram at yogi.zorananda you can find me on facebook at yogi zorananda and looking forward to jumping in on the podcasting community and making more of these episodes. So again, thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your day and enjoy. Enjoy.